Welcome to episode 73 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we're going to be talking about um, a new installment of our archetype series, and we're going to be talking about cataclysms or survival stories. Yeah, these are, I mean, again, with with parts of the rest of our series, it's it's probably up for debate whether or not these are archetypal narratives, but I do think there are some commonalities between um, what we've sort of called cataclysm or uh, survival narratives. Cataclysm generally being kind of most broadly defined, I guess, as post-apocalyptic. Often it's post-apocalyptic, like there was some huge event that has changed something, you know, Mm -hmm. either the climate or it was like a giant EMP, so we no longer have electricity, or there's something that has changed the world as we know it, therefore a cataclysmic event. And then there are survivor narratives, which doesn't necessarily have, they don't necessarily have to be set in a post-apocalyptic or post-cataclysmic world. Um, They're just stories where the person, the protagonist, or a group of people have to survive with very limited means. Mm -hmm. Um, I think sort of similar to the dystopian narrative, or even, I guess, related to the dystopian narrative, I think a couple years ago, the market was kind of saturated with a lot of, uh, at least in the YA side, a lot of post-apocalyptic narratives. Mm. Um, And they're not really my favorite to be completely honest. Um, I mean, I like, actually, weirdly, I like survivor narratives, but I don't love cataclysm stories. Yeah, I think I'm the same way. I really like stories about survival and, you know, post-natural disaster or whatever, but cataclysm, when it goes to that extreme, I think it's less interesting to me. I mean, the part where somebody has to survive with limited means, I find that interesting. In particular, like, when I was little, the books that come to mind immediately for me are things like The Hatchet Mm -hmm. by Gary Paulson or My Side of the Mountain by Jean Craighead George. Um, My Side of the Mountain in particular was, like, really, really influential on, like, eight-year-old me because I just loved this idea that you could, like, literally go to the woods and like have everything you could ever need mm-hmm. uh living in the woods um and all he did all sam gribbley did was take out a book from the library and make some notes about how to survive in the woods i don't know i just i loved that story um and as an adult i think i enjoy you know it i think it sort of, sort of comes down to the process porn that kelly and i had talked about yeah. in the heist episode where we sort of really like just how what like reading about how things get done or how you would go about doing this like how would you build fire or how would you do this or how would you feed yourself in these sort of circumstances 
Um, whereas I think post-apocalyptic narratives, although survival is a huge part of said narratives, I think a lot of the post-apocalyptic or post-cataclysmic stories are often about trying to figure out how they got there. Mm. If that makes sense, like they try to figure out what caused it and why. How do they go back to the way they were living before? Um, so, I mean, I guess I'm trying to think if there were a couple of stories that were set in post-apocalyptic universes, or like James Dashner's *The Maze Runner* is kind of set in a post-apocalyptic universe, or. Um, I mean, like, Under the Never Sky by Veronica Rossi also took place in a post-apocalyptic world. Um, or even, even to some extent, like, Marie Lou's legend books clearly take place post kind of a huge world-changing event, even though I would more, more categorize the legend books as dystopian than post-apocalyptic. The post-apocalyptic setting is what informs the haves and the have-nots in her world. Um, so what are some characteristics that you think tie post-apocalyptic or cataclysmic and survival narratives together? Um, what ties them together? I don't know. I keep thinking about like my mind just keeps thinking about different um apoc post apoc blah 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 <laughs> You guys I've had such a long day and it's been such a bad day, so my brain is just not here. I've been thinking about the Martian this whole time that we've been talking. Mm. Because that's like the most recent example I think that I can think of of a survival story mm -hmm. and like a I, Robinson Crusoe type. Yeah. You know, like very much like Robinson Crusoe in space. Yes. <laughs> I, I hope that's how the book was pitched because it's perfect <laughs> for that kind of a thing. But, um, you know, I think that is a really good example when we're talking about these kind of stories, because like JJ just mentioned, there's a lot of um, process porn in that book. We found out, you know, exactly how he, is able to survive because he is the botanist and can grow the potatoes and he has enough, you know, NASA intelligence to be able to, you know, rig machinery together and understand physics and biology and all this different stuff. Um, you know, he has the skill set required to survive in that environment. And when you step back and think about that as a story, that is just one man who is alone, who is essentially running against a ticking clock like he has a certain amount of time left where he could conceivably live based on the food that he's been able to grow and the resources at his disposal and then he's gonna die and so he has to get off that planet before that happens but really it's just him like driving around and growing potatoes like and that's the whole book but it is still riveting and it is still fascinating um and i think i think i've gone off on a tangent that doesn't relate to your question at all but um do you think that most survival stories 
like uh, like the Martian, like the Hatchet, are they sole survivor stories? Can you think of any other survivor stories that are more ensemble cast? Or are those kind of by nature tend to be more cataclysms type stories? I, I do think that survivor narratives are often really sort of focused on a single protagonist. Because I think a lot of survivor narratives, if not a single protagonist, then it would be a pretty small group or a pretty small number. Um, there's something I was thinking about when you were talking about The Martian, because I was wondering if the thing that connects survivor narratives anyway is kind of about the resilience of humans. Yeah. Because it really, like, all survivor stories really basically kind of come, you come out the other end being like, look at how resourceful that person was, or look at how they didn't succumb to despair, or Mm. look at, you know, like, there's that kind of... They beat the odds. Yeah, they beat the odds, and they survived, and they did this, and, um, you know, the, actually, now I'm thinking about, so... There is a book by Octav- the late, great Octavia Butler called, it's actually a trilogy, called uh, The Parable of the Sower. And it is set kind of in a near future setting in um, the world has kind of fallen apart politically, sociologically, and resource-wise um, so that people are kind of living in like these literal gated, armored communities. Um, and then there's kind of like all like they're like little islands of relative stability and security um and then there's kind of all these like wild lands in between in which there are a lot of people without a connection to a community are trying to eke it out and make it on their own and at the start of the story the protagonist's community is broken into by the outsiders and pretty much everyone in town is either killed or you know, had unspeakable things done to. So she, our protagonist, Lauren, uh, and I think two of her friends from home are the only only three that, from, or at least from her community, that kind of survive and meet up. And the whole point of the narrative is to get from one place of safety to the next place of safety. Uh, this whole trilogy is actually really, really great. It, it It delves into a lot of other questions, not just about... Um, survival, but also about religion. Like, what causes, not causes religion, but why do people turn to religion? Why, you know, when it when it starts out as a set of really interesting teachings, then how does it morph into this, you know, aspect of mysticism and myth-making and storytelling? I do highly recommend, well, pretty much anything by Octavia Butler, because she's amazing. But, um, so that's kind of the only example I can think of with, that is like a survival narrative with a growing cast of characters actually because um so it starts out with the three of them and then as they go on this journey f- to find the next relative place of safety they kind of gather more people in their group and they sort of develop a community and they're looking for a place and in lauren's mind she calls it earth seed that's kind of like her fledgling religion or kind of community name um so this like earth seed community they're trying to find a place to build it so um, that's the only one I can think of that's got a group. I think sort of by, I guess not by design or nature, but I think the survival narrative, it's easier to focus on one person. Mm-hmm. Um, because 
even just when I think about writing a story like that, like having to worry about how to feed every other character, and like these are all things that Lauren has to think about in her story, and you know, this is not a book thing, but it did make me think about it. Was the Oregon Trail? Yeah. <laughs> I think Kelly and I are dating ourselves. Because how old is that game now? Like oh, twenty man. years old. Yeah. I played that in like third grade at school, and I'm 35, so that was a long time ago. It's <laughs> like 25 years ago? Yeah. Um, so it's an old game, but basically you play as a bunch of people on the trail, like on a covered wagon trail to Oregon, and you have a finite number of resources, and you can choose what profession you are, like a carpenter or a doctor, and you're like in a wagon trail. And you have to ford so many rivers and lose so many oxen and try to figure out what you're going to do for food and what you're going to trade. And, um, so you I think die of dysentery. And... <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of those things kind of... There's, I think there's also a game aspect. Not entirely in the... In, in a, like a cataclysmic narrative, but... I think a lot of game playing or role playing games kind of have this sort of resource management thing built into it. Mm -hmm. That sort of reminds me of a survival narrative. And I don't know what it is that's so compelling about it. Because I like to read about it, but I don't know if I can necessarily pinpoint why. And particularly for me, because I really don't even like playing video games. Yeah. I don't know. I think, you know, what you said about human resilience is a big factor in how people connect with these stories. And do you remember probably in the early 2000s, there was this rash of like natural disaster movies? Oh, yeah. That were like huge at the time. And, you know, it was like the the world has been overtaken by glaciers and everything's frozen and we have to survive in a library and yeah like the day whatever. after tomorrow it's so yep. bad but i loved then, it i know right or else there's like an earthquake or there's something like some kind of a natural disaster that comes and and wrecks the lives of these people and they just kind of have to survive and it never really moves those movies never really move into the cataclysm story and that they never really go beyond the event of the disaster itself like it's not about rebuilding life or surviving in the aftermath it's just about like living through the actual event and if you can do that then you know the movie assumes that things are going to get better (laughs) never mind that we've lost several cities and yeah you know people are dead and there's probably no law and order in the countries anymore you know like it's all we made it you lived (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of where those movies all stopped. Um, but those are, they were really big in the early 2000s. There was like a whole slew of them for summer blockbusters. Um, and I, I think, you know, that that is, I think that people like that, that will to survive, that human resilience, that overcoming of those odds, um, I think does speak to people. Because 
to use myself as an example, I have many talents and I'm good at a lot of things and I consider myself an intelligent person and I would be 100% dead. Like, I am not going to outrun the zombies. I am not going to survive in space. I am not going to be able to do any of the things necessary to acquire shelter for myself or food for myself or any of those things. Like, I might last a week if I'm very lucky, but then I'm going to die. <laughs> so, so there is something, I think, for me interesting about that and that I can kind of live vicariously through characters um, in a way that in the real world I, I would not be doing, I don't think. I mean, there are groups of people who are actual survivalists. Like, mm -hmm. this is what they like to do. There are even TV shows about this. Um, like the one with Bear Grylls. Man yeah. vs. Wild or something, I can't remember. Yep. Um, there's TV shows like that. There are people who like to do... I mean, we camp for multiple reasons. I think that, you know... I, I actually enjoy camping. I like going out and being in nature and having a campfire and all that sort of stuff. Um, but you did mention the zombie apocalypse, which I think is interesting. Because at first, I'm not sure I would have categorized the zombie apocalypse, even though it is an apocalyptic event, mm. really, uh, in this group. Because I was thinking, like, physical cataclysm. But... yeah. It, I, I do think that the zombie apocalypse does belong kind of in this group of stories. And, I mean, I also like zombie books, but I like a particular stripe of zombie books. Like, I like... Um, one of my favorites is World War Z, and that's not even mm -hmm. really a novel. It's not even a narrative. It's like a collection of ephemera. <laughs> It is. It's a collection of ephemera of, of different accounts of what they have they have dubbed the zombie war or mm -hmm. Z or I can't remember what it was. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I, I like it when the zombies are not they don't mean oh no. I like well, I mean zombies always have meaning, I think. Yeah. Zombies will always mean something. Like it's it's either futility or your impending death or blah blah blah. Um so zombies are great f metaphorically for various different things, but I think I like my zombie narratives to really be about it. It is. It's about human resilience because even yeah. something like Shaun of the Dead. Yes, um, such a good my, movie. Such a good movie. I mean, I love everything Edgar Wright has made, but I do love Shaun of the Dead. And what I love is that like it's about what they do to survive, mm -hmm. like the choices that they're put up against and what choices that they make. Um, and it it is a little bit. Voyeur, not voyeuristic, but it's a little bit wish fulfillmenty, or not even that. It's a little bit like, what would I do in that situation if I were right. faced with this choice? What would I do? Um, it's a little bit more active of a reading experience for me than I think reading other types of novels, where I'm just kind of a little bit more passively going along with the story and seeing what's happening, as opposed to like a survival narrative, or even like when I was reading The Martian, I was like what would I do in that situation? Like, if this was the choice that I made, or this yep. is the, this is the thing that happened to me, then what choice would I make? Um, so I think when, when you are writing a, a survival narrative in that way, I think that is kind of the thing that you have to take into consideration, which is the choices that your character makes and what that says about them, and I guess what it says about the resilience of the human spirit. 
Um, we we have not really touched post-apocalyptic. No. Um, I think because I'm trying to think of examples. So we have, um, for books, there is Station Eleven, mm-hmm. which kind of looks at that po- post-apocalyptic, you know, survival, rebuilding societies sort of a thing through a very literary lens. What are some other stories that do that? Because the other examples that come to mind are not books. Uh, Yeah. Mad Max. Yep. All of the Mad Max movies. Um, Waterworld. That was the other one I was thinking of, too. Uh, I have not seen Waterworld. I I don't know how long. Um, I have seen it entirely too recently because David genuinely loves that movie. (laughs) I don't even remember the plot very well. All I know is that he like gills. Doesn't he have gills? He has gills, right? So I don't know. I can never take it seriously when I watch it. I don't know. There's like a child who has a map on her back. That like I don't know. It's all weird. It's all weird. It's not good. And they're trying to find land, right? Isn't yeah. That, that's the point. They're trying to find... And, you know, really, I think a lot of post-apocalypse narratives is, like, trying to find the one safe haven or the one right. place that is untouched. Like, I don't know if you've seen Fury Road, but um, in Mad Max Fury Road, they're, they're like, trying to find the, quote, green place. mm um, so I think a lot of, or even like the land before time, that's the one I'm thinking of. <gasps> oh my God. The land before time. Um, yes. Which again, at least the first one, cause that's the only one I really remember at all is that they are trying to basically cross this desolate wasteland to get to this kind of happy valley. Is that what it was called? can't remember. Yeah, something like that. Or am I remembering, like, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim or something? Mm. (laughs) Um, But again, it's like the narrative of a group of people traveling across the wasteland to find kind of that one place of Mm -hmm. safety and or happiness. Um, And it's funny because, like, most of the post-apocalyptic narratives, except for maybe Mad Max that I can think of, always have that kind of end point where you have to like end on a happy note like they finally get where they're going to get to the only other exception i can think of is the road <laughs> oh that's bleak which is it is a post-apocalyptic narrative um there's a nuclear fallout so it's about a man and his son surviving in nuclear winter and spoiler alert it does not end happily like at all it's very bleak um and that's kind of the only exception I can think of because, as we sort of mentioned before, a lot of these are about the resilience of humans, about their will to survive despite the odds, their will to, you know, keep on living. Whereas, so I feel like a lot of these do kind of end happily because that's what we want to believe. We want to believe that it was for something, that these people, these characters suffered for a reason, that we didn't. Right we weren't put through sort of needless suffering on their account because if it doesn't end happily then 
then what? But then, like, what about the zombie, like, the zombie apocalypse? Because if we really think about it, there's no real happy ending to a zombie apocalypse. Really? Because I feel like a lot of times in the movies, they manage to end on that happy note. Like, not necessarily, they haven't necessarily, like, eradicated the zombie problem, but there's usually, like, an army base oasis or, like, some kind of, like, rescuing thing, like, some part of civilization that hasn't been touched by the plague that they can all get to. Yeah, but then I always feel like there's sequel bait where you find out, no, this perfect paradise has been overrun by zombies. just keeps going on ad nauseum until you probably will eventually end up running out of places. Mm -hmm. Um, Or there's that the the Warm Blood the YA uh, zombie novel. I actually haven't read the book but I did see the movie. Oh, Warm Bodies. Warm Bodies. There you go. Um, That ends happily. They manage to cure the disease. I forget how but I know they do. Wasn't it, like, the power of love or something? Something like that, yeah. Like, it it really was, like, just remember who you are. And, <laughs> and oh, no. I mean, like, Shaun of the Dead ends happily in that, like, zombies and humankind have learned to coexist. live with each other. Yeah, to coexist. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, just by very nature of the zombie apocalypse, I don't think that's a narrative that ends happily. I have not watched The Walking Dead, but I feel like that's it's just that. You're just, like, eking out a survival. Um, and yeah. it, there's no getting better. You're yeah. just existing from day to day. So, I mean, like, there is a video game called The Last of Us that I have not played, but I have watched Mark play because it's just excellent storytelling and that's also set during the zombie apocalypse um and the i don't want to i don't want to give away the ending you guys could if you have not played the last of us go out and play it because it's really 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 good um or you can just like google the ending and you can kind of tell me what you think about it because i think the ending at least in my mind is kind of bittersweet and sort of it's kind of the only way a story like that could, I think, end on. And a lot of these survival slash post-apocalyptic ones, um, unless you know that there is either a cure for the zombies or there is a way to fix the cataclysm or there is a way to rebuild after the cataclysm has taken place, um, a lot of these are really bleak because they're sort of about the end of civilization as we know it. Um, I think the other thing that I find interesting about cataclysmic stories again kind of going back to the resilience of the human spirit is that there are cataclysmic stories in our mythology or in our religions because there's the myth of the great flood that exists across a whole bunch of different religions and a whole bunch of different cultures um you know the ancient mayans had this idea about the world ending you know we're like in the fourth or fifth version of the world after it's ended or these ages have ended after this many times so there's something about the idea that the cataclysm isn't the end because the resilience of the human spirit will you know cause us to rebuild civilizations even if we have not forgotten if even if we've forgotten what came before so i find that kind of an interesting angle to sort of take um 
but yeah, still the the cataclysmic story is not something that like really particularly interests me, and I just don't know why. I kind of know why. Um, <laughs> this actually has to do a little bit with James Dashner's books, The Maze Runner. So oh yeah, each the first book, The Maze Runner, is sort of set in this setting where the main character wakes up and he has no idea where he is or how he got there or what happened or any of that. And so it's about a group of boys who keep exploring beyond their like safe haven to figure out where they are, what they're doing there, how to get out. And um, they, spoiler alert, at the end of the first book they finally leave and they go out into the wider world and they realize the wider world is just as messed up as it was kind of where they were. And there are like these implications or these hints that there's a reason the world is the way it is. Like either, so they're like trying to figure out why and why that why they're part of this quote experiment or all, any of this sort of stuff. And ultimately, a lot of these post post apocalyptic novels are kind of about trying to figure out why the world became as it did because trying to figure out why the world became as it did helps them figure out how to solve the crisis but then it kind of becomes about the secret or the twist and it almost never lives up to the setup in my it's like lost right lost being kind of that survivor narrative and you sort of hope that you you want to know why they're there. You want to know why the island is the way it is. You want to know all these sorts of things. And when you do find out, and like, well, that was not good. <laughs> you know, there the setup was so much more interesting than the payoff. And I feel like that is a lot of that is often a problem with a lot of post-apocalyptic stories. Yeah. Whereas the payoff of a survival narrative, or just like a straightforward one, is just you survived <laughs> you, didn't, you did it yeah you didn't die <laughs> good job for whatever reason this is not a typical survivor story at all but for whatever reason i kept thinking of it when you were talking about uh the maze runner about how they have to you know they don't know where they are and they wake up and then it becomes about trying to you know put the pieces together and figure out what is going on and for whatever reason, while you were talking about that, I just kept thinking about The Truman Show. Oh, I love that movie. Such a good movie. And not really a survival story. No. But still about a man who his understanding of the world is very different from the world as it is. And he needs to uncover the truth and free himself. So I don't know why I thought of that. I just did. In, in many movie, ways, the, the Truman Show is also about the resilience of the human spirit, because despite everyone else trying to control the environment around him, literally controlling the environment around him, he doesn't care. He wants to know what is beyond the edges of the world that he's lived in. So that's such a really good movie that is like one of the few movies like I remember seeing that in the theaters I was like 10 when it came out but I literally went to go see that in the theater like five a times lot. like five yeah. times like a lot I don't know why I love that movie so much but I just loved that movie a ton yeah it was great and it was like that was the first time I think that I can remember anyway that Jim Carrey played a serious role 
he had been doing a lot of things like Ace Ventura and Dumb and Dumber and The Mask and all these like highly comedic slapsticky things and then that was a much more dramatic role than he'd played before I think so mm-hmm. and I thought he did a really good job oh yeah there's something mm-hmm. very likable about that character too because you mm-hmm. you you even though we know what the situation he's in even if he's unaware of it we are immediately on his side and you want him to like leave the world that he's always known and it's great yeah. um so that that is kind of a sort of side off many recommendation I guess for this week that isn't <laughs> doesn't really have to no. do with the cataclysm narrative or the survival narrative but um sort of thematically ties into what we're yeah. talking about tonight um I mean I guess if you really wanted to kind of generalize I think a, a lot of stories if not most are about the resilience of the human spirit um but there is something about survival and post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic stories that really highlight that or at least Mm -hmm. i think that the good ones do that they highlight our humankind's innate resourcefulness and desire Mm -hmm. to survive because we're the cockroaches of the universe (laughs) so Mm -hmm. for good or bad for good or bad (laughs) um yeah so uh any last words on a kind of survival cataclysm resilience of the human spirit narratives no i think much like our heist podcast now i just want to go like watch all the movies and read all the things <laughs> i don't know much. i don't i don't really want to go watch Waterworld again well nobody <laughs> wants to go watch Waterworld again except but for I your husband more, i well yeah he owns the dvd <laughs> He does. He does. Anytime we have like a hard collection of DVDs and whenever we're flipping through looking for something to watch, he's always like, what about Waterworld? I'm like, what about no, no. How about no, thank you. Um, no, but I was thinking more specifically The Martian. Mm. I, uh, it's funny because I think actually I have a really acute memory of like our first or second podcast ever when I was still recording in the closet, I think. <laughs> The Martian was, like, one of my first, like, what are you reading, like, in one of those really early episodes. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I want to go back and reread it. Yeah, there are... I feel like I kind of need to reread The Maze Runner because it's been a long time, and I'm mm. pretty sure I got to the end of that series and nothing was explained. Yeah, I, I quit after the second book. So maybe they I don't know we'll see we'll see if I have time to go back um, and and do it and read it so uh, well what are we working on what are we working on I am working on client stuff I'm gearing up to go out on sub for real for real in like two more weeks and then uh, working on edits for my third client's manuscript that just came in so that's what I'm doing. And I have to start prepping for this class. I'm teaching a class in October and I need to start uh, planning for that and creating my lesson plan stuff because October is going to be here very soon. <laughs> I know. I know. Which is a little bit frightening. I know. Uh, I don't know where the summer went, but ugh. what about you? What are you working on? I got my edit letter. Um, Yay! Yay! So- 
yay and it is a very tight turnaround um so if i sound loopy or like i don't have words it's because i'm revising <laughs> like from basically the moment i get up to the moment i go to bed i'm revising my face off uh, basically to make the production date so shadow song comes out on time uh, um it's, I mean, it's weird to say that it's a lot of work and not, but it is both a lot of work and not. The things my editor had said, I more or less anticipated, so I kind of knew this already. And this, what always happens to me when I'm revising, because I am a pantser, means that I don't know what I've written until I've written a really terrible first draft. And once I've written a terrible first draft, then I have to go and figure out what story it is I've been wanting to tell the whole time, and then go back and rewrite it, basically, but properly this time. I wish I could cut out that terrible first draft stage. I really wish that I could just go straight into writing the story I want to tell properly, but that is just not how it works for me. Um, so right now I'm in that point at that point where okay I now know what the story is that I want to tell and now I have to rewrite it from beginning to end properly and it's not that much work in that I no longer have to figure out what I'm trying to tell because like the first draft was a nightmare for me trying to figure out what the story is what the emotional arc was and this and that all of that's there now and I just kind of have to shuffle everything around in the correct order and make sure there's a through line through all the scenes. And so the actual basic story and the shape of the story doesn't change, but all the details and the guts do. So that's why I mean where that's what I mean when I say it's both a lot of work and not. For example, I quote wrote 10,000 words today, um, but that's like 3,000 new words and 7,000 old words that I've kind of like shuffled around and rearranged so now that everything flows properly. Um, but it is a very tight turnaround for me, so I'm kind of, I it's like if there are no words, that's where all my words have gone. <laughs> um, Valid. Yeah. Uh, also, I have been more or less getting into photography or back yeah. into photography. Um, one of the gifts I brought my bought myself with my first royalty check um, was a new camera. And I'd been taking photographs for a long time, and my old camera is pretty old, and my skills had grown beyond it. And so I had actually set for myself this goal that on Instagram every day this month, well, from when I started it, which was like the 15th, but... Basically, from the point I started it, I was going to take a photo every single day. And not just a photo, but like post a photo every single day. And the point was, and I said this in my Instagram post, that I think creativity fosters creativity, regardless of what discipline you do it in. So mm -hmm. for me, I was spending a lot of time, when I'm not writing and in my downtime, I kind of study up on what I like in a photograph. Like I look at the works of various photographers that I like, like Rodney Smith or Sig Harvey. 
and try and figure out what it is about their images that speak to me and why and study a little bit about their composition and their uh, post-processing and their color harmony and all those sorts of things that the technical elements that make up a good photograph. But technical elements that make up a good photograph can all be there in a photo and still not speak to me. So, you know, it's trying to kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work at the same time I'm revising is sort of kind of opened up different pathways in my brain. So I actually mm -hmm. approach writing and revising a little bit differently. So it's like, I guess my advice to a lot of you guys, if you're stuck, you know, a lot of times being stuck is being lazy, but a, a lot of times being stuck is that you're in a rut, that there is nothing getting you out of a rut. So maybe pick up a new discipline. You know, photography is pretty easy. You don't have to get a fancy camera like I did. Um, but like an, even just like a simple point and shoot is fine. Or your phone. Your phone is actually a really decent camera these days. And you can learn, you know, how to manipulate those things and how to change things around and to kind of crop things or just to look at the world differently. And I do think that photography has made me more conscious of just looking at things or of just seeing things or seeing the world. Um, so that's kind of my other thing that I've been working on that isn't, you know, working on my book. Um, I can announce the secret project stuff soon. Um, not quite yet, but soon we're, we're mostly trying to figure out what to call it. <laughs> Um, because I'm terrible with titles, and so the title, the kind of temporary title I slapped on it, no one likes, including myself. So um, we're just trying to figure out what to call it right now. But that's kind of what I'm working on on my end. Nice. Any off-menu recommendations? Um, oh, did we skip what, what you're reading? We did. What are we reading? Well, I guess maybe we skipped it, because are we actually reading anything? No. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> <I>, I'm not. <laughs> no, me neither. I mean, this section of the podcast might be kind of slim pickings until my book is turned in, so... <laughs> I'll try to pick up the slack, but uh, I'm just reading client stuff. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not reading anything aside from blurb stuff and... Um, finishing up the Gilded Wolves for Roshni Chakshi. Um, but that's not published anything, so it's like kind of work-related reading. Um, yeah. But off many recommendations. So aside from Game of Thrones, which is kind of the only show I really have time for at the moment, I there is actually a podcast called Nerdette Recaps Game of Thrones with Peter uh -huh. Sagal. This is a, Nerdette is actually a podcast um, hosted by two women, and it sort of just covers subjects and topics that people are passionate about or, or quote, nerdy about. Um, so they're really great. They're really interesting. Um, and obviously having a separate Game of Thrones podcast was kind of a no-brainer for them, I think. And Peter Sagal is the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Mm -hmm. um, they're both on the same radio network in Chicago, and he is a huge Game of Thrones, like, Song of Ice and Fire, like, book nerd. So after they watch an episode, 
they record their kind of they thoughts, reactions, what they think, the sh where they think the show's going, and everything. And it's been kind of fun listening to those. Um, kind of in a related note, there is a website called Black Nerd Problems, and they have the absolute most amazing recaps of each Game of Thrones episode. Um, so I'll put a link to to their tag on in the show notes. It's Black Nerd Problems. It's amazing. So that's kind of it for me. What about you? So I'm, I can't talk too much about this because I, I still hold out hope that someday you're going to watch it. Um, but the, sh the finale, the series finale of Orphan Black, uh, is it was over on now? last week. It is over. Okay. It is done, completely finished. Um, and I had kind of the opposite experience with the finale that I did with the finale of Lost, which was really wonderful. And it also kind of like made me think like, is this how people who love the Lost finale felt? That they're able to kind of hand wave a bunch of stuff away and and still love it anyway? I'm not one of those people. I hate the finale of Lost, <laughs> as I've said here before. Um, but Orphan Black had kind of painted itself into a similar corner mm. with the end of the show it I don't think was ever intended to run for five seasons so I think a lot of the back half was them um, kind of making up stories as they went and not really being sure where they were going with it um, you know so there were lots of things that they'd kind of invented and done away with and dropped and you know so there's definitely plot threads that were kind of all over the place and and um you know when they finally started tying things together uh, i had complicated feelings about the resolution of some of that stuff but the finale um went all in on the emotional resolution and really was just kind of like this show is not about the you know, the weird plot mystery science stuff. It is about the characters and we're going to go a hundred percent all in on an emotional, um, finale for these people. And it was very strange because it was almost like completely devoid of action for a show that had been very action packed. Um, and I, when it started and I was watching it, I was like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> Like, if you had asked me to describe what I expected out of the Orphan Black finale, this was not it. Um, but the more I started watching and the more I got sucked in, um, and I just, I really loved it at the end. And I can't stop thinking about it since uh, it's been a couple days now since I've seen it. And I can't stop thinking about it. And the more I think about it, the more I really love it. Um, so for me, it was that experience of this is emotionally satisfying even though it's not necessarily intellectually satisfying it's not answering all my you know questions it's not scratching that itch but like emotionally I feel like okay yes this is like the right note for this story to end on um I've talked about Orphan Black on the podcast before I love it I just think for all its flaws and it is flawed uh, most things are uh, and Orphan Black definitely has flaws it's got story flaws it's got all kinds of flaws um, but it's 
also just brilliant and Tatiana Maslany who's the lead actress is mind-blowingly phenomenal uh she's like it weirds me out how talented she is it's very creepy uh she's just so brilliant and there's so many wonderful characters on this show and I just it's it's probably the piece of television that has engrossed me and touched me and entertained me most uh in a good long while so it's over I'm sad that it's over but also I think it was the right ending so I'm happy about it I think and if you haven't watched it yet you have to watch it it's on Amazon Prime Uh, if you're a Prime member you can watch the first four seasons I think for free streaming and uh, the fifth one will be up there eventually I'm sure but uh, even if you have to pay for it do it it's so good it's so good yeah I mean the thing about the emotional ending that does not resolve plot endings I'm the kind of person who's like I'm okay with emotional endings even at even as the same time I'm like rolling my eyes at the plot resolution yeah Lost is one of them Battlestar Galactica is the other one yeah that's another one I absolutely, completely, 100% agree with everyone's criticisms about particularly Battlestar Galactica, because that ending was just inane. Um, and it, it it dropped the ball on so many things. And yet, yeah. at the same time, I, I mean, I cared that it dropped the ball on these things, but I also kind of still didn't care at the same time. Like, the yeah. characters that I loved got endings, emotional endings that I wanted them to have. Even even Gaius Baltar, who actually is one of my favorite characters of all time and oh, yeah. looks he looks at me kinda weird, but one I'm of the like, best. No, he's a brilliant character. He's great. I love I love Gaius. Um like and his ending was really stupid. It was actually really stupid and I didn't care. I was like I was like, this is the dumbest ending you could give a single and yet I was like, you know what? But it's just like emotionally satisfying for me. Um, Mm -hmm. for some reason I can really just, like, Lost is, like, as time goes on, I look at the series, the season, the series finale of Lost and basically kind of go like, why did I waste my time? I, I don't feel that way about Battlestar Galactica, even as I thought that the series finale of that show was just, what? (laughs) Yeah. What, what, what was the point of that again? Um, so... It can. I think it can depend. I think for yeah. Lost in particular, it's because they sort of sell it as. Well, they don't sell it as anything. It's just that people found out what the island was too soon, and then they lied to you about what the island was. And I think yes. that's the problem with Lost. Yes. And this is the thing too that we've talked about in books and stuff before. When you're actively being lied to by a character or a narrator, and how pissed it makes you, it makes you very pissed. It makes you really mad, and it's also because yeah. like. That that season that ending for Lost, had it happened around season three or four, I think I would have been a little bit okay, better with because at least yeah. like they would have set things up properly as opposed to, this is the problem that I mentioned with George R. R. Martin before that he's a pantser so he's good at setup and not as good at payoff, and if you have a beginning a middle and an end of a story to tell you know where to set things up and then where to start paying them off. 
but when you're a show like Lost that I think was originally only supposed to be as a limited number of seasons and then it did well enough that they just kept adding stuff so they kept setting up new things so by the time they got to their last season there was absolutely no time to pay any yeah. of those things off so yeah. you know there there's something to be said about knowing that your your series mm-hmm. has a finite end that you're like okay we only have four seasons to tell the story so let's make every single episode count and i think in yeah. the end those make much for much better viewing than yeah i think the interesting thing about the orphan black finale too was that um part of the whole thing with orphan black is that it was like a series of like russian nesting dolls like you think you find the big bad and then actually there's a whole nother thing that's even larger that's behind it and you keep going and it seems like every single time um you know there's a bigger bad there's something more sinister behind the curtain and in this final season we finally get to see you know who our true antagonist is who is the person that's been pulling these strings for all this time and it was not an impressive villain. <laughs> it did not like not nearly as scary or interesting or fascinating as some of the other like small bosses that they'd had <laughs> earlier. And so what the finale did essentially was it kind of acknowledged like this villain kind of sucks and so we're just going to get that part over with as soon as possible. The villain is dispatched in like the first 7 minutes of the final episode. They just the, the the penultimate episode like sets up this big like conflict and you think okay this whole finale is going to be this action thing and it's this person against that person it's going to be this big huge it, it's done in like the first seven minutes they just the, the episode starts we have this conflict and the person wins and it's over and it's done and you're like but wait it's it's literally like we're not at the first commercial break yet like i don't <laughs> understand <laughs> what's happening but in a way that was really nice because nobody i think cared about that villain nobody thought that that was a compelling ending and so they just dispatched with it and were (laughs) were like we're gonna focus on these people now so it was interesting it was strange it was a, a tonal shift i didn't anticipate but i think it was handled well and i think you know because they recognized that weakness and ended on a strength instead. I think it was, I think it was good. It worked for me. I don't know about other people. I actually have not gone on uh, to read any, you know, reviews of it or what people online are kind of saying. I've just enjoyed sitting with my own reactions about it, but everybody should watch it. It's so good. Cause I also need to know who your favorite is. Okay. At some point I'll have time. I always I know, say this. Someday. I always say this, and I'm just like, at some point I'll have time. At some point I'll have the emotional bandwidth for another TV show, <laughs> maybe. Someday. That is all for this week. Next week we're going to be wrapping up our summer of archetypes by talking about the coming of age narrative. So as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like this, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. 
You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S J A E J O N E S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or send us a question using the hashtag AskPubCrawl on Twitter. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye.